Welcome to this bonus episode of the Lady Science Podcast. Uh, I'm Rebecca Ortenberg, Lady Science's Managing Editor. I'm Layla McNeil, one of the founders and editors-in-chief of Lady Science. And I'm Anna Reeser, the other founder and editor-in-chief of Lady Science. We are very pleased today to be joined by Jaypreet Verdi, a historian of medicine, technology, and disability, and assistant professor at the University of Delaware. She is author of the new book, Hearing Happiness, Deafness Cures in History, published this week by the University of Chicago Press. Hearing Happiness is a history of the endless quest for a cure for deafness and the ways medicine and technology have shaped the culture and perception of deafness in American society. The book is also a memoir, weaving history with an account of Dr. Verdi's own experience as a deaf woman. So Dr. Verdi, thank you so much for being here and welcome to the show. Thank you. I'm very happy to be here. So I want to kind of begin with this idea of childhood because the book begins with a kind of account of your own childhood. And I wanted to start with this idea of um, loss as kind of a general concept, because I think it permeates so much of of the thinking about deafness as a medical convention and the motivation to find a cure for deafness. So when people have talked about cures for deafness for children now and in the past, how does this idea of loss loss of hearing, loss of speech, of the, you know, chance at a so-called normal life. How does that idea shape this quest for a cure, the perception that deafness is something that should be cured at all? Uh, That's a great question. To begin, it's important to remember that the majority of deaf children who are born are born to hearing parents. So many parents uh, might not actually be familiar with deaf culture or the kind of challenges that come with raising a deaf child. So when a child is born and assessed to have a hearing loss, the advice that the parent usually receives comes from medical professionals and from other kind of health professional experts. So this clearly shapes the way in which information about deafness is strictly shaped and controlled by medicalization. And I think this kind of immediately puts forward this idea of deafness as a medical condition that needs to be fixed in that it needs to be treated, it needs to be cured, it needs to, in other words, fall under the same guise as any other disease that has the kind of solution at the end. But with deafness, you know, there are other complications um, that could be challenging for hearing parents, especially with communication. So if a deaf child is born and has some kind of genetic deafness, then the challenge is, of course, the child had never actually heard sound. So it's not going to feel, like this child is not going to feel any sense of loss. And I think that's a really important point. Um, actually, that a friend of mine who is um, conditionally deaf pointed out, you can't talk about deafness as a loss when we're talking about being born deaf, because there was never any hearing to lose. Now, this is kind of a broader history of how we approach deafness at a medical condition, and how is concept like, um, you know, newborn screening test, or idea of standardized hearing, and things like that, how they shape their conception of deafness as 
a condition to be fixed that starts as early as infanthood. But going forward from that, parents feel the burden then to try to give the child the best chance of the normal life as they understand it, which means taking them to experts, um, better school, different treatment, different technology, and then maybe language acquisition, uh, sign language somehow fits in there as well. So the your book often deals with a distinction between an adaptation and then a fix or a cure for disability. And this is something that applies to other differences as well beyond deafness and is the crux of a lot of disability activism. So I'm wondering if you could talk a little bit about how people in the past think of this distinction and where did power tend to lie in making decisions about what kinds of differences should be quote unquote fixed. One of the things I struggled when I was initially writing Hearing Happiness was what kind of story I was going to tell here. Is it a story from, you know, a top-down model of medical improvement and advancement and technological progress? Or is it a story about how people kind of responded to those cures that were pushed upon them? And, you know, my book ended up being kind of a merge of these two formats because what I really wanted to do was introduce this idea of disability as being cured and treated with this kind of endpoint that success is guaranteed when that disability is quote unquote fixed. But what I found interesting is that choices people made in learning how to interact with their built environment tells us a lot about how disabled people were trying to shape their bodies to the environment, but also this kind of expectation that the environment was supposed to make space for them. And my colleagues, you know, Amy Hemware, uh, Beth Wilmington, and Sarah Hendren all have these wonderful works out on disability and the built environment, the design. But when I incorporated some of the ideas in hearing happiness, I was thinking about how people I guess, decided when to end the negotiation, when they decide to con- to stop, perhaps, continuing to fix their disability or stop and just kind of accept it. And there's no right or wrong answer in that because I think a lot of it has to do with the kind of agency that disabled people have over their own lives. So, for example, looking at the archives, um, at the American Medical Association, I was looking at all these letters from the early 20th century written by deaf people from all over the United States. I mean, they wrote to the AMA asking for insight and advice on whether this cure was proven to be effective, whether they could trust a physician, or whether they were fooling themselves and thinking a new patent in medical cure would actually cure the deafness. And these letters are really revealing because they outline, you know, these kind of self-contained patron history. So these people are assessing their lives through the lens of their deafness, what worked, what didn't, what complications they had, what struggles they needed to uh, deal with in order to feel like functioning, productive people. So 
there's a, there's a lot of power here, I think, in making that claim that you can live with your disability. And then I think more importantly, you can make this kind of adaptation yourself that don't always align with broader cultural expectations. So, for example, somebody deciding to wear a bulky hearing aid rather than go and try the latest surgical technique for fixing their deafness. Jumping off of that a little bit, uh, you write about the idea of a cure itself is very unstable um, and that many of these cures and fixes uh, that that you mentioned learning about in the archives uh, are and today are really kind of advertised as miracle cures. Uh, so um, one example that people um, I think might be familiar with today mm-hmm. is cochlear implants, um, which I think a lot of people like in the popular imagination see as quote-unquote, curing deafness, um, but actually require extensive therapy and adjustments and can cause ongoing pain and come with enormous financial cost. Uh, And so could you talk a little bit about sort of the difference between these popular perceptions of what these kinds of cures and technologies can do and uh, the actual experiences of people who use them? Yeah, so one of the popular perceptions of any kind of what was being advertised as new hope for the deaf is that it's an immediate cure. Like you try this medical treatment, you take this patent medicine, or you wear this hearing aid or cochlear implant, and immediately your hearing is restored. Like you hear as normal. But um, that's obviously not necessarily the case. As you mentioned with most specifically with things like cochlear implants, there's a lot of extensive therapy, there's a lot of struggling um, adjustments that come with dealing, you know, wearing with these cochlear implants and dealing with the new stimulation of sound that were never really recognized or perhaps even heard before. So this is not a contemporary phenomenon. Like in my research, I've seen this what I refer to in the book as the switch on factor. You know, you try this mm-hmm. cure and then immediately your hearing is restored. This is something that I've seen repeatedly in the archive until like, like as early as the 19th century. And a lot of it has to do with the misconception of the struggles of trying to hear. I mean, it's not just like hearing with your ear. There, you know, your brain is part of the process too. Interpreting, making sense of, um, where the sounds are coming from, having comprehension, all of that is part of the hearing experience. And when I see things like artificial eardrums, for example, marketed as a cure, again, there is this long-standing rhetoric in that the cure is instant. You put the tiny little device inside your ear, it works as a prosthetic, it repairs broken eardrums, and then you should have no problem with sound comprehension. And obviously that's not necessarily the case, which is why artificial eardrums haven't quite become a staple in um, technological devices for hearing loss. But one of the things I also came across is the ways in which these cures were promoted and marketed to deaf people as well. So when hearing aids, for example, in the earlier 20th century, started to become more um, technologically sophisticated, like the manufacturers were improving on the microphone and the receiver and the battery power. Advertisers were 
releasing images of people wearing hearing aids, you know, as this happy cheer for people and very stereotypical gender representation as well, where the hearing aid allowed the male to go get a job and be a very successful businessman and the female who wore hearing aids succeeds in her domestic life. But what's left out in a lot of these imagery is how many people struggle with the day-to-day life of actually wearing these hearing aids when the body pack um, hearing aids, which we refer to as monopack, because they often came in like either one pack or sometimes with a separate battery, they were heavy. And wearing that, you know, strapped on your body does cause frustration and complication all day long. I mean, it's the literal weight of struggling to hear. And on top of that, the actual process of wearing this and interacting with your life can also be complicated as well because the wires would wear out or it would interfere with your clothing. So the clothing would rub against the wire and the microphone, creating this kind of static. Um, the battery didn't last very long. So deaf people often made their own adjustment. So they designed special packs for them to carry the hearing aids on, or they struggled with changing the wire. Sometimes they even took apart the hearing aids and improved the engineering features of it. <laughs> so the image of wearing this hearing aid and being immediately being able to hear again was not actually the same experience that deaf people experienced when they were wearing these hearing aids, like with a much more complicated, much more difficult process of trying to align their body with this device that they, was put, that they were putting on themselves. One of the things I was thinking about um, while you were talking about um, how people see someone start to have their hearing automatically restored, and that's kind of the in these images and advertising. And I'm wondering if you've seen any difference in the age of like social media where you can easily share these like inspiration porn type of videos of I've seen several of like children who've never who've never had hearing and then they get these implants and they're filming it and the child can hear for the first time and then everyone starts crying and then that's kind of the end of the video (laughs) um (laughs) and I'm just wondering is that has that changed at all how people perceive cures for deafness or is it just kind of another iteration of what you've seen in the archives oh it's just another <laughs> it's just a 21st century version of the same old thing i mean mm-hmm. you know again that's a literal switch on factor you know this drama of being in the audiologist's office putting the implant or their hearing aid on a young child and then turning it on. And then there was this like recognition of sound. And then it's so emotional. It's so moving that, you know, you can't help but cry. But how many times have these switch on resulted in failure or in difficulties or in the struggle? We don't really know. We don't know anything beyond that stack moment when the switch is turned on. We're never really told you know, the financial struggle, the burden that come with training or with um, with trying to figure out new aspects of communication with these hearing aids or going to another specialist and things like that. Like there's a whole complicated process that we don't really see at the end of that switch on feature in these videos. And I think that leaves out a lot of the actuality of living with a hearing loss and being forced upon these technologies, but it also showed that the idea, again, of deafness being an instant 
topics where technology or medicine is another long line of history um, that has never really changed. Yeah, I was going to say that I uh, I listened in on a world-building panel, a science fiction convention recently that was all about disability. And they talked a lot about, like, you know, should, you know, if we were able to build mech suits for people who use wheelchairs so that they can walk, would we do that? And everyone was like, well, we could just not have stairs. <laughs> in, the, in the future, that would be good too. Um, yeah. But they, one of the things they also talked about is this idea of a technological fix and who is actually like, who is pulling the strings or is in control of that? That like, and you talk about this in your book too, that when you switch to a different type of hearing aid, it wasn't, something you were able to adjust yourself anymore Mm -hmm. and so you kind of lost Mm -hmm. a certain amount of control over the technology and for things like cochlear implants like some of them you can't change the settings on them at all without Mm -hmm. you know either going in for an adjustment or sometimes not at all because there's like proprietary ip in the software that runs them or you know things like that that like this idea that these these technologies are not only an instant fix, but also are going to provide you with like complete independence and autonomy is not true either. Yeah, definitely. I mean, again, there's this assumption that the newest technology is always better than the last. And, you know, this idea of technological progress, advancing us toward a more, I guess, advanced future. But as I talk about in the case of digital hearing aids, one thing that's not always discussed, um, I think, in the audiologist's office or even in media, is digital hearing aids have a shelf life. My analog hearing aid that I had prior to um, digital hearing aid, they lasted me for 12 years. I mean, they could have kept lasting if there was people, what you know, um, experts who were able to do the repairs. Um, but in the new digital age, there was no need for repair. You just kind of toss it away and get a new one. But these are like $8,000 hearing aids. <laughs> Nobody had, a, no, not a lot of people had $8,000 just to like replace hearing aids every three years, no matter what funding you get for it. That's a ridiculous amount of money. And why aren't we making these things to be built to last? And I think, you know, my my colleagues, um, Lee Vinto and Andrew Russell, they also have a great book coming out um, this week the innovation delusion, where they talk about how our relationship with maintenance and technology have changed. And their work really influences the way I think about hearing aids because so much of the 20th century was about improving the engineering and technological features of hearing aids to make them more sustainable for deaf people who were actually writing to these hearing aid companies with their advice and with their input on how to improve certain things like clothing rub, for example, or adjusting the battery pack so that the weight was evenly distributed when they're wearing it. But now we have this idea that there are engineering and technological innovators who design these devices um, supposedly, supposedly for better sound interface But in my own experience and doing the research on this, I have learned that many hearing aids, many digital hearing aids for that matter, also don't target the wide range, like the wide spectrum of hearing loss. So it usually targets the 
partially deaf or, you know, moderate hearing loss rather than the more severe hearing loss. Because the idea was that those who have more severe types of hearing loss, well, they can just get fitted for a cochlear implant. Mm -hmm. And in fact, that was actually an advice that my own audiologist said to me. And I've been with that firm for 25 years. And it's like, okay, well, you know, your options for digital hearing are very limited. Have you thought about having cochlear implants? <laughs> and I'm like, this is my choice now, <laughs> brain surgery or an insufficient hearing aid? Like, what happened to the choices I had for the past 25 years? So, I mean, I think it's remarkable because when we talk about technological progress, the experiences of people are often left behind you, I think. Yeah, yeah, I'm I'm definitely really struck by in so many of these stories where mm-hmm. whether it's the cost or just the idea that like wearing this pack would take a certain uh, wearing the battery pack would take a certain amount of like work and effort and it just it's it's so clear that in these cases it seems like where the creation of the technology comes first and the mm-hmm. process of like figuring out how someone actually uses the technology Mm-hmm. is an afterthought and and that's true in many instances a much smaller but still annoying example was the whole thing of like a new iphone came out and like it wouldn't fit in your pocket anymore because it was enormous exactly. uh, and it just and and it's a similar it just it's one of those weird things where like yeah engineers get obsessed with like making the technology cool and then don't think about how the technology will be used by humans in the world yeah Exactly. And then there's this new shift, I think, in promoting all these kind of prototype hearing aids that look like ear gouged or um, hidden in glasses or look like earrings. And I'm like, this isn't a new idea. We've seen variations of this in the 20th century where hearing aids were being designed to be hidden, like literally hidden on the ear by resembling some other kind of object. So this idea like, oh, look, there's this cool new technology for the people that don't look like hearing aid. And my response is always like, well, what's wrong with actually wearing a hearing aid? Why don't you just like improve the <laughs> yeah. hearing aid technology rather than trying to hide it repeatedly? The description in the book of the uh, hearing trumpets that would be like festooned with like lace and trim and stuff if you were <laughs> holding it against your body when you weren't using it, it would blend in with your dress. I love yeah. that. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. There would be like, there was a um, 19th century ear trumpet that was painted black and had all these like black lace because the idea was that it was marketed for women who recently became widowed and they would be in mourning as per Victorian style. So they would just kind of like he- pick up the ear trumpet and when they weren't wearing it, they just put it on the lap and the fabric and lace of their dresses were kind of disguised. So um, the ear trumpet, but I think in an alternative way of looking at this is also that fashionable women wanted the ear trumpet, possibly the most intimate possession, to match their fashion style, right? Like the way we might, um, I don't know, change our watch band to, to a different color to match with our outfit. I think that's another way of thinking about it, too, because we have to remember that no matter how hearing aids and mechanical ear trumpets were marketed, people still had choices in how they were selecting these devices. They decided which trumpet they wanted, sometimes with the advice of the seller, but they tend to pick things that best resemble the kind of identity that they were trying to project. 
So I like to imagine the ear trumpet with the black lace on it wasn't always about hiding, but it was also about claiming the deafness at the same time. I love that. That kind of leads us into segue for discussion of deaf culture. And the book has, a, I think, a really nice sort of compact explanation of capital D deaf culture. It would be helpful, I think, for people who are new to that subject. Could you give us just a quick rundown of what you mean by deaf culture and kind of how this culture crystallizes around um, American Sign Language and how how culture has shaped and interacted ideas for deafness in the past and in Certainly, I do want to point out that this book is not strictly about deafness with a capital D, but that doesn't mean that deaf with the capital D people don't configure in the story. Of course they do. They are part of the history of deafness cure. And where sign language fits in is part of this broader idea about negotiating for a cure, negotiating that were done by families and deaf individuals and also experts about how what's the best mean, I think, for them to live as a deaf person. So deaf culture, as I'm sure many of you know, is the connection to sign language and a community that kind of rejects this idea of deafness as being a disabling condition that requires a medical fix. So it's kind of an assertion of autonomy over their own identity. But there are many deaf people like myself who don't nicely fit in with the deaf community as it's kind of promoted because we're not proponents of sign language, but we have the same kind of attitude about community and autonomy. Then there is this general assumption that there is a separation of, I guess, population groups who have hearing loss. On one hand, you have deaf with the capital D, you have that community that relies on sign language and reject all kinds of medical and technological intervention. And then you have the group who might be classified or identified as the hard of hearing, who view themselves as having a disability, but otherwise still quote unquote normal people who are part of the hearing community. And my books argue that this is not a very black and white kind of approach. Their hearing loss is a spectrum, a spectrum of audiological differences, but also of identity. So let me give you one example. A lot of deaf schools publish periodicals that were printed by the students in the school. And these periodicals were kind of like newsletters that the pupils would send home or circulate amongst the um, family members or the actual community. And many of these periodicals included editorials or investigative reports um, about some event or some idea or some technology relating to deaf culture. If we look closely in these periodicals, a lot of them actually have questions or reports about the later technological or medical definite cure fad. I mean, they investigated, they discussed the possibility whether it would be um, helpful for the deaf community, and they kind of like discussed the pros and cons. And there are some instances in which 
depth with the capital D people have said, well, I'm just going to try this cure. I mean, I know I know sign language. I know I'm part of this community, but I want to try this cure. And I think looking at this kind of spectrum of identities and experiences give us a more deeper understanding of where deafness cures fits in this history and that it doesn't always fall into this like this split boundaries between the two ideas about deafness being either deaf culture with sign language or the hard of hearing who reject any association with deafness. So I want to come back to this uh, ear trumpet <laughs> uh, before we end. Um, and that I really loved your account of you trying out an ear trumpet for the first time and you're pleading with the curator to let you do it. Um so before we end, I wanted to ask if there was a particular cure or patent medicine or an especially outrageous bit of quackery you encountered in your research that you really enjoyed learning more about. I mean, I'm glad you enjoyed that piece about me trying out the ear trumpet too. <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, when I'm writing this thing, it's like, okay, do I actually include the story? But I'm, I'm so glad I did because one of the things I want to do with that particular passage, it shows just how much we can learn from material culture because most of our impressions about ear trumpets are in like two-dimensional images or other kind of secondary reports. But actually trying this and putting myself, you know, possibly in the position of the person who used it and learning how it worked and then obviously the whole point of like begging the creator to try me out <laughs> I think it's such an in- revealing of the historical process in our art historians aren't always like working in the archive finding material sometimes we're actually engaging with the material as well mm-hmm. um so I'm glad you enjoyed that but in terms of your question about outrageous bit of quackery the one I think that shocked me the most was really the flying cures for deafness. These airplane dyes that became <laughs> a really popular fad in the 1920s and 1930s because I thought they were just rare occurrences. You know, just this individual who was a risk taker, a daredevil, who kind of went up on the plane and then learned through trial and error that this was an effective deafness cure. But the more I dug into their story, the more it became clear that it was a literal fad that was popularized in newspapers and protocols. I mean, people were really discussing the benefits of this. And then you have people trying it out. And some were successful, some didn't get any results, and many died from plane crashes. And that still didn't stop people from trying it. And, you know, it's just kind of this remarkable idea. It's like, what are the lengths are we going to go to 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 like commit ourselves to this idea of a deafness cure, including putting like baby on a plane and having them go up in the air and this like dangerous stunt of loops and dies and things like that. Wow. Yeah. (laughs) I want to um, thank you, Dr. Rudy, for talking with us about your book and sharing some more of your finds in the archives with us today. Everyone listening, um, you should check out her book, Hearing Happiness, which is now out so you can buy it. Yeah, this was fabulous. Thank you for thank you again for having me here on Lady Science. If you liked our episode today, leave us a rating and a review on Apple Podcasts so that new listeners can find us. If you have questions about any of the topics we discussed, tweet us at, at LadyXScience or hashtag LadySciPod. 
For show notes, episode transcripts, to sign up for a monthly newsletter, read articles and essays, pitch us an idea, and more, visit ladyscience.com. We are an independent magazine, so we depend on the support from our readers and listeners. You can support us through a monthly donation with Patreon or through one-time donations. Just visit ladyscience.com donate. And until next time, you can find us on Facebook at at LadyScienceMag and on Twitter and Instagram at at LadyXScience.